We started making a lot of parts late 90s, early 2000s, and it's been a transitional thing where we now make pretty much everything. They want the charm and the joy of a classic, but the usability and the functionability of a modern car. And I think it's been a great shift in the industry, and I think some people have done it extremely well, some people not so well. They've all got great histories, great people have driven them, they've done wonderful events. For me, it's something that's really quite special to be involved with. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of The Chubb Interviews. I'm Jodie Kidd. So spring has finally sprung and the kids are back at school. Hallelujah! And hopefully we will soon get more of a chance to get out and about. And if you're lucky enough to own a classic car, even better. Thank you so much for your fantastic feedback after our last episode with car designer Ian Callum. He really was such a fascinating listen. If you haven't had a chance to hear all of our Chubb interviews, why not check out all of our episodes? In this series, we talk to fellow classic car lovers, exploring the personal stories of people who inhabit this wonderful world. And this episode is no exception. Today's guest is Mark Lyon, who owns the fabulous classic Ferrari specialist GTO Engineering. I cannot think of a better person to talk to about the coolest car brand on the planet. But before we talk to Mark, it's time to introduce my co-host for this episode, motoring journalist Carl Fortune. Hi, Kyle. Hi there, Judy. How are you? I'm very, very good. I've got a little bit more of a spring in my step because it is... Spring! It's here. The daffodils are out. I think we've all got a bit more of a spring in our step now, haven't we? You're a journalist. How difficult has it been not to be able to get out and drive cars over the last year? It's been a challenging sort of year. I think March is when my year would typically start. And last year, we were heading to Geneva. That's when the, the motoring world seems to start to rev up and get really busy and interesting. But then there was a little bit of chat about Geneva not happening. And it was like, it was OK, we'll worry about that if it happens. And then, bang, it just stopped. So not a huge amount. of there's, there's been high points through the year, one of which GTO Engineering I visited in August, which still oh. stands as one of the best days of my career. You know, I went and drove their lovely 250 short wheelbase revival oh, car. stop it. And that was in August. But other than that, I've been relatively quiet. I was driving an old 911 for a magazine I do some work for, Total 911, a couple of weeks back down at Paul Stevens uh, Specialist Cars. And that was nice to get out and about again, you know, just to be in, in old cars and with a bit of sun on your back as well, which is lovely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if you're only going to have a choice of one car to drive through lockdown to write about, I think you picked a goodie. <laughs> it was it was fairly good. And actually, I've been enjoying my old car as well, because typically being a motoring journalist, I will have all sorts of cars to test and borrow. But people weren't moving and I didn't think it was right to be borrowing cars and have people moving around unnecessarily. So I've just been running around and I've got an old Peugeot 205 GTI that I've basically been dailying, which has been great fun. You know, it's been a real joy. So obviously... All the the big car launches and everything was cancelled in the big events last year. So is there one that you're kind of looking forward to this year or is there a car launch that you're looking forward to? I do quite a lot of work for Porsche magazines and write a lot about Porsches and great friendships with some of the engineers there. So I was last year, I was very lucky and in between lockdowns to fly over to Germany and spend some time in the GT3 prototype with Andreas Breuninger. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing the finished car, which I think what we now we're in March now, I think end of March, April, I think I should have 
had some wheel time in the in the car by then so I'm, I'm looking forward to that one that's a that's a big car for me you know any car to be honest with you it's, it's just nice to get out and about and the thing i think that's last 12 months is underlined for me it's the cars are, are fantastic i really enjoy that element of what i do and, and the travel obviously is a lovely part of that as well but it's meeting the people and i think that's something that really interesting and exciting is is, is meeting people telling their stories, hearing their stories. And I think that's something you guys do really well on your podcast is chatting to people. And it's a fascinating world and there's so many stories out there. So it's that part that I've missed as much as uh, the actual driving cars and, and seeing lovely cars and, and being part of that. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, we were supposed to start this podcast and be face to face with all the people sure. that I've been interviewing. Yeah, so it's going to be very strange when we can actually meet people, you know, a bit at the end of the podcast where we get our guests to talk about their one piece at a time to actually sure. see it and to hold yeah. it and things yeah. like that. So, yeah. um yeah, it, it has been extraordinary, but I totally understand that necessity to actually just get the wind through the hair, especially if you're in yeah. a classic car and just Sadly, feel it and smell hair. it. Have you not? <laughs> no. I've got, see, I've if got you could hair. see me, I've got no hair. I, <laughs> I wear got... a hat. When I'm, I'm being a <laughs> Scotsman as well. I just burn. Hat and a kilt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It has been done. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So time to say hello to our special guest, Mark Lyon. Hi, Mark, and welcome. Good morning, Jody. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. And you? Very, very good. The days are getting lighter. The sun is shining. You know, the end of lockdown is looming. There is light at the end of the tunnel. So I think feeling a lot more kind of positive. As I mentioned, your family own a brilliant classic Ferrari specialist, GTO Engineering. Can you tell us a little bit about how GTO Engineering came to be and your earliest memories of Ferraris? I was a car mechanic and uh, I, was, I was very fortunate that when I left technical college, I went straight to had an apprenticeship with a Ferrari specialist. Started pretty young. I then worked for a garage in London doing not just Ferraris, but all sorts of high-end cars. Then I went back to the first garage I worked for and had a, a great time restoring and repairing and building mainly Ferraris, but also Jaguars and Aston Martins. And then uh, I went on my own a very small way just at home in my garage, kind of built from there. It's interesting there, Mark, listening to you say that you used to work on, on all sorts of uh, high-end cars and, and sports and supercars and whatnot. What is it that took you down the Ferrari route? What is it with Ferraris that make them so special? I think the thing for me that's special about Ferraris is that nearly everything they did worked very well but was also aesthetically pleasing, which is very important in an engineering why I mean not okay the cars are beautiful but every bracket you pick up every linkage you look at every bolt you touch is just done so well other car manufacturers simply don't do that is that something peculiar to the Italians do you think do you think it's part of their character part of their engineering heritage and the way they look at things yeah I think it is I think the Italians just really get that so you've been doing this for many years and you've seen the market change and evolve. What was it like when you were first working on things like 250 GTOs and stuff like that? And LMs and TRs, Tessarossas? Just mentioning those names, it's like the best cars in the world. They are just so beautiful, aren't they? It's so evocative as well. And like, you know, to think that those cars at one point were largely forgotten or, or ignored and it was probably a small bunch of people who were interested in them. And Mark was working on them, you know, way before they became these cars that we'd see at Goodwood and we all lusted after. What was it like back then, Mark? Can you sort of describe what it was like before they became such a clamour for these cars? 
I think in those earlier years, the very late 70s and the 80s, there was still a very strong bunch of people who thought the cars were special. They thought they were special because they wanted to use them, they wanted to drive them, they wanted to race them, have some fun in them. And I think that's changed a lot now. What were the prices like back then to now? I mean, what do you think that moment was where suddenly someone went, oh my goodness, the 250 short wheelbase or the GTO or, you know, where it suddenly, where it all went just mad? I think it started to go mad in the mid to late 80s. And of course, we had a big dip at the end of the 80s. You know, I've seen three recessions in my time in this industry. My old boss came into the workshop and said, the 250 GTO has just sold for £100,000. And it was, like <gasps> a, it, was, it was like a big piece of news. Wow. What were they before the crash? I think in the 87, 88 era, they'd have been probably 3 million, something like that. Right. Wow. That is unbelievable. Gosh, if we only knew back then. <laughs> Absolutely. Gosh, and people used to race these. I've seen videos of people driving them in California up canyons and just knocking about in them. It's incredible. These are race cars. These are cars that people destroyed engines, drove into each other, didn't really care about. Now these are worth tens of millions of pounds. There's been a real change. When did things like matching numbers matter? You know, given that these are race cars, you know, they, they might have had several engines in their life and things like that. Is that something you're worried about? Or do people realise that because these were cars that were effectively working cars for Ferrari, it's not such an important thing with these things? I think today matching numbers is very important. There was been, still been a select group of people, even in the 70s and even before that probably, who would have been very aware of numbers matching necessity. I think that now it's just become a very widely accepted thing in the public sphere. I mean, in the early days, no one really cared publicly, just a few specialists. Everything's changed. Mark, will you just explain to the listeners exactly what matching numbers is? Yeah, so with a Ferrari, for instance, and I think it's best to stick to them, every car has what is called a build sheet, which is done by the factory, obviously, when they build the car. And on that build sheet, there's the chassis number. And on a Ferrari, the engine number is usually the same as the chassis number. But every major component, such as an engine gearbox and axle, has what's called a numero interno, which is an internal number, which has nothing to do with the chassis number. It's just simply stamped on as an identification when they're building the car. They're all on the build sheet, those numbers, and they're also stamped on the components. So it's important that the number on the component matches the build sheet number. That kind of takes me back to when you were very early on in the 70s, you know. How did you find the parts back then? Well, I think if you go back that far, there was a lot more parts available and there was still a lot of collectors, even in the very early days, even in the 60s, who were racing the cars and therefore they had big collections of spares because they were racing numerous cars and to support those cars, particularly in America, they needed to have a decent reserve of spares that they could run up race meetings and these were obviously very wealthy guys. So there was a lot of spares you could buy. We went and bought, as in my, with the company I used to work for, went and bought a number of spares collections which we then used to build the cars. But at some point, these spares collections run out, don't they? So this is where you've come in as a business and taken these parts and recreated them and remanufactured them to the point that you can build whole cars effectively, can't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's been a gradual thing. There's always been some parts you couldn't get and weren't available. And then you had to either go and make them or start scouring the earth to try and find them. And whereas we used to buy a lot of parts collections all over the world, I mean, I'm talking about GTO engineering now, we very rarely go and buy parts collections now because there simply aren't many left. 
we started making a lot of parts probably late 90s, early 2000s, and it's been a transitional thing where we now make pretty much everything. What were the first parts that became scarce? What were the things that you just couldn't get? The gold dust stuff, you know, the sort of stuff that you just didn't matter where you looked, you couldn't find it, but you needed some of the very low volume cars, particularly the competition cars, if, for instance, you broke a gearbox or an engine block, that would be a very hard part to find. You would take the broken parts and basically backward engineer them, I'm guessing, sort of, you know, use those parts as a template to make the new parts. Yeah, that's right. And, and obviously that process has become a lot more successful and a lot, I wouldn't say easier, but a, but a lot better to do with current technology and, and, and new methods than it was in the 70s and 80s. So you said that at GTO you now pretty much can make any part. What's the most tricky part, would you say, to make and how many hours would it take to build it? The really tricky stuff we try not to make because you end up just tripping yourself up. For instance, we try not to make carburetors because there's many, many clever people who have tried and failed and it just seems like a, a waste of time. And you can still buy them mostly from sources around the world. The trickiest part to make... You know, they're all tricky in different ways, to be honest with you, <laughs> yeah. but I, th I, th I think it's funny, actually, things like making glass is quite hard because if you're trying to tolerance glass, it's really quite difficult to make sure that the, every windscreen, for instance, is the same. It's probably the unlikely things that trip you up that you think, oh, that's easy. You know, we can make engine blocks, we can make heads, we can do all those things. Yes, it's really tricky and it's very time consuming, but we kind of know how to do it. It's mainly the things we have to subcontract that are tricky. Out of all the cars that you've done over the years, is there a favourite? There's quite a few favourites is the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if I said one car, it's, yeah, it's hard. I, I like the 50s sports racing cars, the open sports racing cars, because they're a lot of fun to work on, great fun to drive. They've all got great histories, as great people have driven them. They've done wonderful events. For me, is something that's really quite special to be involved with. Get up to 33% discount on Chubb Multicar Insurance. Go to chubb.com forward slash the interviews for more information. Mark, you've got shops in the UK and LA. Is there any difference between the cars that you see on the, the, the different sides of the Atlantic or are they, they largely the same? Does it matter where they're, they're located in the world? I thought that LA would be a, a kind of replication of the UK, but it's not at all. We do a lot more modern cars in, in the US and when we tend to do lighter servicing on the older cars, if an old car comes in with a, a very big project on it, we would probably ship it over here. Oh, really? Interesting. Talking about getting cars ready for races or events, obviously last year has been you know, a tough year, everything being cancelled, but things are looking a lot more promising for 2021. So what events are you most looking forward to and how will owners kind of prepare their cars for them? Speaking to owners and, and people who are doing events, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty even this year about what will happen and also how many people will be able to travel to the events or, or want to travel perhaps to the events. It'll be a somewhat quieter year. The outdoor concourse will carry on, the, the Hampton Court, the Salon Privé and all those things that, that can do. They obviously actually even happened last year. But I think you know the Goodwood events are quite tough because... It's not just about how many numbers go there, but you know very well that when you're at Goodwood, everyone's trying to stand at the best corner. They're all standing, you know, nose to shoulder sort of thing, and, and it's just quite tough to be socially distanced. I do hope the revival will happen this year because that's an important event. But again, how many US entries and things we'll get, I, I we'll just have to see. 
Would like a US owner, would they speak to you and say, right, we want to enter it in this event? Would you then bring it over from the States, get it up and ready for the event and then take it to the event? Or how would you work with getting cars ready? Yeah, no, we do a lot of that. Yeah. Generally, the owners like to enter the events themselves, because particularly if it's a, a Hampton Court kind of thing, which the Americans really love, they want to have their name on the entry list. They want to be part of the party, but we will do all the logistics for them. Do you think there's going to be any consequences going into the future in terms of what people do with their cars or, or whether the market shifted as a result of the last year or, or people view things differently? I mean, has there been a surge for people to buy these cars? Or, you know, I know speaking anecdotally to high-end car dealers that they've got a lot of trade at the minute because people are sort of saying, you know, you only live once. You know, there's a real desperation to get out and enjoy life again. And do you think, you know, people are, are chasing that dream now and going, do you know what? I was thinking about buying one of these cars or I was going to restore my car. Let's go ahead and do it. You know, what the hell? Let's, you know, push the boat out and do it. Do you think that's something that's happening among your customers? Yeah, I think that's happening very much. Yeah, I mean, we... Despite yeah, what a terrible year last year, it was probably our busiest sales year we've ever had. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people. You know, it's a, I think it's a really interesting, you know, movement, and particularly at the high end. You know, people are just going, you know, we've got these things, let's enjoy them. You know, what's the point in keeping them squirreled away? You know, we've been locked down, and it's almost like a, a real sort of upsurge. Yeah, I think there's been a lot more time on people's hands to really research the cars that they might want to have bought or have bought during lockdown. You know, I certainly know a few friends, you know, they haven't even gone to see them. They haven't even test drove them. You know, they're actually buying them blind. Have you found the same? Yeah, we have, because, of course, one of the big problems is that even if you can open up to show people things, if people can't travel, it's a very international industry. It's been very difficult for people to move around. Yeah, so a lot of kind of blind buying. Yeah, I mean, they can obviously get inspections done and that kind of thing, which which is very important that you do do. But I think, yeah, there's been a lot more online activity, and it's been it's been amazing, actually. If, if you'd said to me two years ago the world would function like that, I would have said definitely not, but it has. It's definitely changed, though. I think in the last few years, as modern cars have got more and more technical and, and complex and, shall we say, a little bit detached from the, the sort of joy and thrill of driving, there's a bit of a move back to older cars. I mean, I certainly spend more time driving older cars personally, and, and I get a lot of joy from that. I think the last decade we've seen a real movement to resto mods and things like that. I know Mark doesn't particularly like the expression resto mod when applied to his cars. I think we think revivals. I was lucky enough to drive one of GTO Engineering's Products, um, 250 short wheelbase uh, revival <gasps> car. Lucky, in, lucky. In August, person. yeah. And, and, and it's still, I've been driving cars for 20 years for work and, and it still stands up there as probably one of the best days in a car I've ever had. When did that sort of whole thing begin for you, Mark? And is that something that you're seeing increasingly people are, are interested in, in older machinery or is there still a bit of a, a wide mix with the modern stuff? I think there is quite a big mix, but I think that what people are finding is is that people love old cars and then they buy a new car, which it's kind of got a fantastic specification sheet. All the numbers and statistics are great, but it's just a bit digital and soulless. So I think what, what the rest of the thing has really come out of people wanting the best of both worlds. So they want the charm and, and the joy of a classic, but the usability and the functionability of a modern car. So and I think it's been a great shift in the industry, and I think some people have done it extremely well, some people not so well. Singer have been a kind of trailblazer in this whole thing, and they're friends of ours. They do a, a really good job. And then other people have sort of copied that and perhaps not done quite so well. But I, I will just say one thing. I think, for me, the important thing 
from this whole lockdown thing. And you talk about a resurgence of enthusiasm and all those things. The important thing is that people use the cars. Totally agree. So can I go back to your revival? So you were saying that people are really loving, you know, the classic car, the beautiful shapes, the beautiful designs, but they obviously want to get to A and B and and many classic car lovers out there would probably know that sometimes that isn't always the way. So they love these cars, but they like, you know, having a little bit of modern stuff put in. Is is this what you're doing with your revival? Well, I think the revival is still pretty much a 60s car it's very much a copy of what was done in the 60s Um, yes there's some reliability improvements there's a few electronics but they are pretty faithful to what was there originally we do for air conditioning to them which i do through gritted teeth but it's (laughs) you kind of have to do it so i think yeah there's a few tweaks and modernizations but they are pretty faithful and they still have some of the problems that a classic car does have the lots of wind noise leaking a bit and some of those things a bit noisy all so, the charms all the charms which actually if you <laughs> want to, if you want to use it regularly or, or more regularly can become a bit annoying how does safety work into that kind of environment? Because I've been very, very lucky and, and driven an original 250, had no seatbelts at all. When you're not reinventing, but you're kind of slightly modernising these cars, do you have to conform to any safety regulations? We don't have to conform, but we do put in seatbelts. It's the customer's choice, but I would say that probably pretty much every one of them has got seatbelts. So when we build the chassis, we put in proper mounting points so that you have got the ability to fit proper seatbelts. And how is the development going of the new car? It's a lot of work. Copying a car is, is difficult, but making something completely new is a much bigger project. We were excited by it, and I think everyone's enjoying the, the process. I have to say it keeps me awake at night sometimes, but what it's done for us as a company is, is that it's very important for me to keep my staff motivated and keep everybody excited about the next thing. And this has really done that. And everyone wants to talk about it. And they're, they're coming into my office and saying, what about this idea? And you know, that kind of thing is, is the way that makes businesses move forward. And I think that's really exciting for us as a business. Just to clarify there, Mark, we're talking about a new car. Is that right, Jody? I think the GTO Engineering Moderna, is that, is that your code name at the moment? That's right, yeah. Can you give me a little bit of detail in terms of what that car is in terms of its spec and where you sort of see it in the marketplace? So it is a new car. It's got some definitely some features of classic cars in it. In lockdown, I saw a digital collage of all the cars that I've worked on and worked with that I've really liked and, and, and the features on them that I've enjoyed. And we, we turned that into a design with, a, with the help of a designer. So that was the beginning of the process. We've then started talking about the technical specifications. So we've made a 3D model of the vehicle, the exterior, and we're also modelling and developing the engine, which is completely new, and the transaxle and, and all the componentry. So we were talking yesterday about interiors, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of processes going on here. So I mean, when you talk about the engine there, presumably... And you mentioned transactional, so front-engined V12 has to be, doesn't it? Quad cam, maybe? Yeah, yeah, both yeah. those things, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and in terms of the construction, well, I appreciate that it's going to have a, an old look to it and, and certainly an old sort of feel, particularly in the way it drives. But you, you'll be applying modern construction techniques and materials and stuff that, that weren't available to the guys back in the day. So it's quite an interesting sort of merger of two worlds, shall we say. Yes, it is. I mean, what people would refer to as the tub of the car will be cut fairly old school with some modern tweaks. But the four corners at each end of the car will be very modern, very lightweight, 
I mean, I think one of the big things about this car is it's light. It's very important to keep the weight out of cars because that's where the mistakes have been made, in my opinion, in the modern supercar, hypercar thing. They just add more and more things onto them and then they've got to put a bit more power in and it's a sort of, they're fighting each other. What inspired you to do it? I think one of the things about... You know, we do like the cars, but what we really like is making things. We're kind of manufacturers. We like making parts. We like the technical bits of cars. And it's always been something that I've kind of, in the back of my mind, thought about. But I think we were walking around a car show about 18 months ago. I mean, I'm quite familiar with the Singer product, and I've been to Singer's factory three or four times. But I was there with a colleague, and I showed her this car, and she said, Uh, We've got to do one of those. We've got to do something like this. And I thought, actually, let's just get on and do it. And then I think when lockdown came, it gave us, as you've rightly said, more time, although we we, we did stay open here, but it gave us more time. And I think you've then got time to develop things and think about things. And probably if we'd been in the usual sort of busy humdrum of life, it would have been much more difficult to do. So in a way, those nine months or whatever it was, was not a blessing, but it it gave us the opportunity to do something. And who do you think your ideal client would be for this particular car? So it's very interesting because one of the things we've been talking about for probably five years here is is that a lot of our clients who have been long-time clients and great car enthusiasts and had a great journey with them, they're, they're obviously getting older like we all are. And, mm-hmm. you know, that either their life emphasis is changing, they're doing slightly different things. And we've been saying for some time we need to have a different demographic here because we need to bring some fresh life in, actually both from a geographical sense and also from an age sense. So we've done a bit of travelling to try and bring in people from other areas, which has been very successful. But I think what this has shown us, this new car, is this, we've had a lot of inquiries about it. And most of them, I would say 90% of them are for people we've never spoken to before. That's been a really good for us as a company. Have they been dotted all around the world or is there a a particular country that seems to be more interested? Because I'm sure there's kind of like the UAE major car enthusiasts or is it like the US? There's a lot in Europe, a lot in the US. I would say about the UAE and probably Asia generally, what we found with them is is they copy by so that they once something's established and it's like the thing to have, that's when they get interested. They're not trailblazing as such. They're effectively following the market. There's obviously exceptions to that, but that's the way I see it. Maybe I'm wrong. You mentioned earlier on that that, that this was a great way of motivating your staff, keeping you busy and and looking to sort of future. You yourself were an apprentice. Are you still getting people knocking at the door, asking to work on these cars? Or or, or are we in a world now where young guys and girls aren't necessarily so interested? Uh, They're all gaming instead. Yeah, they're all all (laughs) sat in front of screens. They're perhaps not sort of, you know, they're maybe not even aware of these things at all. You know, they're sort of... The youth of today, whether they they appreciate these cars at all. I mean, do, do you find it a problem getting people through the door to work on these cars or to get staff to have the skill set to build and create these wonderful things? It's hard to get the right people through the door. That's the thing. And you, know, you can get people through the door. That's easy. But you've got to get people who've got the right approach and ethos about them that they want to do the, the job really well and they've got a lot of attention to detail. Well, the way we've done it really is is we don't try and recruit established people. Now we just try and train. So we've partnered up with a few of the colleges. What, what, what's good about that is is that they can do a lot of the initial interviewing work out who's best for us and then they send us people they can recommend 
I think bringing on young people and training people and, and seeing people from quite a young school or college leave it into a pretty rounded good technician is probably one of the biggest pleasures in my professional career. I bet. I mean, who wouldn't want to tinker around with beautiful Ferraris all day? I mean, I'm, I'm like, right, I'm finishing my podcast and I'm coming up to work for you. <laughs> um, so there's something really, and I find it amazing and I'm so proud of it, but there is something about the craft of doing restoration in Britain and we do it really, really well here. Why do you think that is? I think there's a lot of cottage industries in Britain. I mean, not just in the car industry, but in in many areas. And that mentality, we're very good at making small numbers of things. But I do actually think, to be fair, that there's a lot of places in Europe too. I don't think it's just England. If someone said to someone in England, can you make 10 of these? They would say, that's fine, that's ideal. If you said to them, could you make 100? They wouldn't be quite so good at it. Whereas in America, if you said to someone make 10 of it, they couldn't. But if you said make a thousand, they could. Why do you think that is? Is it just because they've got more accessibility or they can do bigger factories? Well, they're just used to big scale. Yeah. If you look at the numbers of Mustangs they made a month in the 60s, I mean, it's just insane. You know, we most European manufacturers didn't make that many cars in the whole of the production run. Mm. So it's it's just a very different approach. And I'm not saying it's better or worse, it's just different. It would take just as long for the Ferrari factory to make a car that it would then, you know, us doing Jaguars over here. It may be that's true, but a Jaguar is a much more generic car. You know, if you look at the straight six engine in the Jaguar, it ran for so many years, whereas the Ferrari engines, there was probably, they built 100 different engines in that period. You know, Ferrari were never happy with anything. They always had to do something different the next year or month, which is why they're so great. Guessing that, that goes completely to, to their core as a, a racing company. They are, without doubt, the most obvious company where racing is at its very heart and, and always was. The road cars were a byproduct of the racing cars. And I guess that's, you know, very demonstrative in the way that the road cars developed alongside the race cars. You know, if, if something was found to be faster than a race car, it eventually bled its way onto the road cars. That's definitely true. But also look at the number of fantastic one-off Ferraris in, historically in the 50s and 60s that they made, often for very famous people. But, you know, some of them were really beautiful cars. Enzo Ferrari and Pininfarina and all of that, I mean, they just epitomise the most beautiful cars in the world. And, and so many people, I think, would agree. If you had an open checkbook, what one would you get? You're only allowed to choose one, both of you. I'd like to hear both of oh, yours. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Don't want to sound sycophantic, but I mean, that, that, that 250 short wheelbase revival I drove of, of your company, the, the GTO engineering one, was such a phenomenal car. Obviously, a real one, you know, maybe the one that Sterling Moss drove at Goodwood, that would be quite nice. Would I drive it? Would it be too valuable? Yeah, hell, I'd drive it. Of course, I'd drive it. I think these cars, like Mark said, even the historic cars that are worth tens of millions of pounds, I think they need to be driven. I think that's the, the key thing. I'd, I would love a, a 250 short wheelbase. I know everybody gets excited about the GTO, and justifiably, these are phenomenal cars. But I think visually, and just the specification of this 250 short wheelbase is an absolute high point for me. And Mark? I get asked this question a lot, and I and I really don't know quite how to answer it. It depends. If if it's a car I'm going to own and never see any other car, mm-hmm. that's the difference. Because now I can jump in a car as long as the weather's reasonable. I can jump in a car any day and go and drive it. So I'm I'm kind of spoilt. You're I, very very lucky. I think a '50s sports racer, something like a Testarossa or a 290 Amelia or 335S, mm. something like that would be a very cool thing. What would the price on the Mila Milia be? 
I think the last one sold for 26 million or something. Is it 26? Telephone numbers. Yeah. And the last 250, short wheelbase? The trouble with short wheelbase is they very often exchange hands privately. So, you know, you, you don't necessarily know how much it is. I mean, we've got a client here with a really good, probably, I, th- I think, one of the best 250 comp cars, which won the, a lot of significant races in its day. And I think he was offered... 20-something for it and refused it. Right. When I drove the 250, must be about eight years ago, nine years ago, it was around 15. You know, they're creeping up and up and up, aren't they? Yeah, they're very, very special. And I would have to say mine would be the 250, and that's just because I got the chance to drive one. I've sat in a GTO, but I haven't yet had the pleasure to drive one. It's a wonderful car to drive. You know, it just bring so much kind of enjoyment and you know and to think that they were kind of designing these cars to drive to work in during the week and then to literally drive the car off to the racetrack on the weekend and then tear around the racetrack in the same car was just you know a real testament for amazing design and engineering yeah but it's a very great all-round car it really is which is why we did the revival of it because it is something you can race you can have fun in on the road it's just a very usable thing the Moderna is, I think, you know, going back to your new car, and I say new reserved limit, obviously it's a, a brand new scratch-built car, but it, it very much evokes that character, doesn't it? But brings a lot more sort of user-friendliness, I think a bit more space, you know. The thing is with old cars, and I think we'll all agree, we've all got taller and, and maybe wider sometimes, and, and, yeah. and old cars <laughs> are, are quite compromised in that regard. So I think with your Moderna, I mean, that, that gives you the opportunity to bring a lot of, the charm and, and, and driving thrills and pleasure and performance, but in a package that's perhaps more relevant and usable today. That's Is that the case? Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, one of the things we've been very conscious of with our revival cars is that when you get a very tall client come in, it is quite a challenge making them comfortable in the car. So we want to... I know that. Yeah, well, I know you're tall, but I, yeah. think, I think we want to make that a lot more straightforward for the client, but for us as well, because it gives us a headache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I every time I, you know, doing Mila Milias or I, you know, get the chance, I have to always make the steering wheel a lot smaller because I just cannot get my legs in and those wonderful big kind of wooden steering wheels in. I just can't can't get my legs around them. So I can understand how frustrating that is, and also for the tall people out there. Well, I can't wait to see this Moderna. Are you going to be showcasing it anywhere? Have you got a a launch? We're just talking about that now. I mean, whether we do it this. September or whether we we move into next year it depends on on a number of things a whether we can actually get it done by then but b you know what what's actually going to happen whether things are going to open up and I don't think we want to do a launch that we have to do twice because the first one's not very good because there aren't people there it's just a question of getting it right which is you know this year still is still quite tricky bit up in the air still well can I come up and give it a test drive (laughs) absolutely yeah can I I put my hand up for that as well please (laughs) my um my my grandmother always said if you don't ask you don't get absolutely quite right right I will definitely hold you to that mark um I can't wait to see it I really I'm really excited you know having your your knowledge and your history as this kind of blank piece of paper what you've created is is just going to be really really interesting yeah well is it amazing I just have to say thank you so much for having a, a chat and kind of opening the door a bit to the wonderful world obviously gto engineering but also the most incredible cars in the world which are ferraris 
It's been really, really interesting to listen to. But before you go, we have a special theme that runs through this podcast and it's called One Piece at a Time, where we ask our guests to select one prize possession to bring to the podcast. At the end of the series, we'll have this beautiful collection. So you can do anything like a bit of a car, a photograph, an artefact, anything like that, but something that has a special memory or meaning to you. So Mark, out of all those beautiful cars and moments that I think you've had being around Ferraris for so long, what would your piece be? Unfortunately, I think I just like bits of cars that aren't, you know, some people would look at it and wouldn't even know what it was, which is kind of sad. <laughs> but we've got a set of carburetors here in our lobby, which are, are very special to me. They are for a single seater Ferrari from the 50s. And we rebuilt a few of them over the many years we've been doing this. And they're such a beautiful object. And it's something that I walk past every day and still like looking at it. I can testify to the fact that you know your parts, Mark. I remember walking around GTO Engineering when I visited and one of your colleagues came up and asked the difference between two parts. And to me, I just saw these two bits of metal in his hands. And you immediately explained that one was different to the other because of this and that. And you're, you're an absolute oracle when it comes to that sort of stuff. I'm not sure about oracle. It sounds like a bore, more like. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, goodness. That's, it's, it's a no. skill that's uh, hugely admirable and, and sadly not so common these days. No, I honestly cannot wait to come up to have a look. What what else have you got in your, um, where you've got the carburettors? Is that kind of like your little holy holy shrine? It's not really a shrine. It's a lot of new parts in there with drawings because we like to showcase what we can do here, what we manufacture when yeah. people visit. So it kind of, we've kind of got to mix up with new and old parts. Upstairs we have a drawing room with a lot of old drawings, which, which are quite nice to look at. They're mostly from the 50s, a few from the 40s and from the 60s, and there's all handwritten notes from them. They're, they're original factory drawings. Um, oh, wow. And it's quite Incredible. a cool place to just wander around if you're a bit, you know, sad or bored one day. So there's, there's, a, there's a few. <laughs> I don't think. Real history, though. That's, that's, that's real history, yeah. isn't it? You know, and normally, I know, you know, I know because I raced with Maserati for so many years, you know, and I know the Ferrari factory and I know they're kind of notoriously, you know, strict, difficult to get access and things like that. So it's amazing that you've got all of this memorabilia and things like that. So you can have, you know, these little sneak previews of this famous factory that is quite mysterious for us kind of normal people. Yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah, it is. It's supposed to be mysterious. It's very difficult even to get a tour unless you're kind of interested in buying one. And I know that even to buy a Ferrari, you know, they're quite strict as well. Well, Mark, thank you. It's just been so interesting to have this chat with you, to have this glimpse into this incredible world. But I'm definitely going to hold you up on my little test drive. And as soon as lockdown is lifted, I'd love to come up and, and come and see GTO Engineering. It sounds incredible. Yep, you're welcome anytime. Mark, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. And you. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Keep safe and hopefully we'll see you all out and about very, very soon. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Looking for a car insurance quote? Go to chubb.com forward slash the interviews for more information. God, so interesting. I can't wait to drive this new car. Have you seen pictures of what it looks like? 
When I popped over in August last year, I, I was very lucky. A few journalists were there. We were all allowed to sort of have a little sneak peek of what it was. And it's, I don't like to call it a greatest hits, but it's very much, as he, as he mentioned, all his favourite parts of cars in one thing. And it looks beautiful. It's, really? It's visually quite similar to a, a 250 short wheelbase, understandably, but there's bits of Cobra there. There's bits of other car. And, and it looks fantastic. To go and visit, there's a joy. You know, I mean, anybody with any petrol in their veins to visit somewhere like G2 Engineering, you just walk in. And it's like a wonderland, you know. They're never blasé about these things, but, you know, you'll just be walking around and there's, oh, there's a 250 short wheelbase in the corner. I there's know. A... He was so kind of like, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, we had a GTO in last week, you know. And I was like, what? <laughs> I guess these guys, are just they operate in a different reality, don't they? But just sort of apply the same love and attention to detail and, and, and skill as they would anything. It's just they're working with cars that we don't see every day, but they do. It's very much a family business as well. I think as children are involved as well. And you do get that sort of sense of it being a family business when you're there. They're all very welcoming and friendly. And, and you know, it's, it's actually in a big house that's got all the workshops and, and everything. Is it really? The back. Yeah, it's very do, And they live there? They, no, they don't live there. They don't live okay. there. So I think Mark, Mark does have a drive to work, which he can do in any manner of wonderful cars. I know. So, yeah. I, can you imagine? Oh, just today I'll take the long wheelbase. Unbelievable. Thank you so much for sharing my podcast. It was just brilliant. My pleasure. Fingers crossed, if Goodwood does happen, I've got the most beautiful pub called The Half Moon. Come and visit. Let's go and have some lunch and then we can wander on down to Goodwood. It's a lovely day out. I'm a Goodwood regular. It's a high point in my uh, my year. So certainly I'd be delighted to do that. All right, my love. Take care. Bye, bye, bye. Thanks very much. Bye, bye. And to the listeners of this podcast, we would love it if you could share your own one piece at a time. Pictures on Instagram or Facebook, or you can send it to us on email. On Facebook or Instagram, just search for Chubb, that's C-H-U-B-B, Collector Car. For email, it's classiccars at chubb.com or browse chubb.com forward slash the interviews. So thank you so much for joining me today for the latest episode of the Chubb interview series brought to you by Chubb who share our passion for classic cars. There'll be another episode very soon. To receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review and spread the word. And don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classic cars. I'm Jodie Kidd. Until the next time, bye. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.